speaking to Eric Walters. He's a Canadian children's author who's written 124 books on everything from the Rwandan genocide to the current pandemic. He's the recipient of multiple children's awards, as well as the Order of Canada and the UNESCO International Prize. Welcome, Eric. After you is kind of about how you started as an author, because I know you started by writing books for your class because you were a teacher. Um, so I was wondering how being a teacher has a shape has shaped your approach to writing. Well, I think definitely being a teacher is where this all started. Um, also having no realistic um, impression of how hard writing would be. I, I was given a class with 28 students of which 24 were boys. And my class was basically good in three things, uh, gym, lunch, and dismissal. They didn't read, they didn't write. So I started writing for them. So that first book was set in our school, um, the water tower behind the school where the kids went and had fistfights was in it. It was a soccer theme because I played soccer a lot, or I guess football, you'd say. And um, six of the kids in my class became characters in my books, in that book. And I wrote the book and I was reading it to them chapter by chapter as I was writing it. And then they would comment on it and I'd, I'd watch their, their nonverbal co commenting on what was going on. At the end of the year, they came up to me and said, uh, your book is not as bad as most of the garbage we're forced to read, which is actually really a compliment for them. Yeah. Why don't you try and get it published? And I sent it off to six publishers, ignoring the publishing guidelines that say no multiple submissions. I just submitted it to six publishers because I figured what was the worst would happen? Six of them would want to publish it. And so um, I got a, an acceptance and I thought, okay, I've written a book, but I, I'm not a writer, I'm a teacher. And the next year, the kids rolled in and said, so, Mr. Walters, what are you going to write about this year? And that's where it all started. It was very innocent. That's, that's oh, yeah. So much of what happens in my life is complete because I'm oblivious to the possibilities. That's incredible. And like you're, the fact that your books are still so prominent in school, I was actually, I was reminiscing today. I'm pretty sure you spoke to my fifth grade class. Um, oh God, I've spoken to everyone's fifth grade class at one point. I was saying to Scott. <laughs> I, I'm now getting to the point where teachers come up to me with a book that they, and they say, can you sign this again? You signed it when I was in grade five. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is both sweet and I am so old. <laughs> well, I think, it, I think it really is incredible, like the prominence of your books in the Canadian school system. And actually, I was wondering what Because I'm old and almost dead. <laughs> I was wondering what it meant to you to kind of be that Canadian voice and be that Canadian author. Well, I think it comes with a responsibility. Um, I'm the, uh, the start of the I Read Canadian campaign. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, I'm not. Started in my car in a drive from uh, Lethbridge to Calgary to Edmonton to Red Deer to Saskatoon to Winnipeg. And, and believe me, Sky, if you like, no trees, you should be going to the prairies. Um, you can run off the road and not realize it for about half an hour. It's just that flat. And I started looking at the decline in Canadian books and, and historically Canada has been dominated by the British market and then the American market. And what I want to look at is what, was, what were Canadian, what were our voices? So I invited three main organizations, literacy organizations out to lunch and most people don't turn down a free lunch. And we launched the Ivory Canadian movement. And in our first year with no staff and no budget, we got one out of every six schools in Canada to read Canadian that day. This is year two, and we still have no staff, no budget in a pandemic, but we're going to end up with about 4,000 schools. 
I, I take this role very seriously. I am an incredibly proud Canadian. I was wondering specifically what you think differentiates a Canadian voice in literature or what do you think makes Canadian literature stand out? I think that as things have evolved, we used to be almost imitation British. If you look back in the beginnings of Canadian literature, we were trying to be British. And it's, it's a colonial mentality that you sort of, uh, um, it's almost like the Stockholm syndrome. You, and you identify with the person that's taking you hostage. And so we were, we were pretend British. And now we look at the voices within our country, which include Aboriginal and East Indian and Asian and, um, and diverse voices in terms of everything. And that's Canada. We're a country that really does celebrate our, our multicultural nature and, and the diversity of our voices. Not that we're perfect. God knows no one is perfect. We, we have the same issues around systemic racism and we have issues that are, that are there. I, I get confused though when people say two things which are very different, which are equally wrong. I hate when people say we're as bad as the United States in terms of these things. No, we're not. But that's not the example you aim for. My cancer isn't as bad as your cancer, so obviously it's okay. We're, as a country, striving to make, um, make changes. And I think particularly with Indigenous people, we're, we're making some real strides. You look at the percentage of people who are Indigenous who are publishing books, the places where they end up on awards, the promotion of them. We're trying to embrace all of who we are. We're an accepting country. The, the word tolerance is one of the words I hate the most. I tolerate being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. I tolerate the Conservative Party of Canada. I try and accept people around me. And one of the ways I've been doing this, the book I'm working on right now is a co-write with a gentleman named Wally Shaw. Wally is 26 years old. He's a spoken word poet who's Muslim. He's originally from Pakistan. Working with him and crafting a story together is almost the Canadian experience, crafting these cultures and these generations and bringing them together to make something significant. It's been a delight. Yeah, it's amazing. And on that sort of topic of writing more books, you've written 104 so far, um, which is a oh, lot. Oh, no, no, 124 at this point. Oh, my goodness. And the day, and the day isn't over. <laughs> well, that is obviously an amazing achievement and amount of production how where do you find all of this inspiration and how do you keep such a tight production schedule if you've already got another yeah. oh goodness um i i do love writing so i'm doing it continually whenever i have a spare moment i write and i don't need to have isolated time i can i can multitask when i'm writing the, the pandemic has opened up a, an, an interesting space for me in a normal year, I do between four and 600 school presentations. That's why I can say I think I've been everyone's grade five class, but also everyone's kindergarten class and grade eight class. I've canceled hundreds and hundreds of presentations, which has freed up more writing time this year. So between the pandemic start and, and this novel I'm doing, the final drafts on with, with Wally today, I've written five full novels during the pandemic. Um, what is working in a pandemic like as a writer? Obviously, you, you have all this free time, but you're also faced with very stressful things coming at you from the news and the world what's it like it can, be, it can be paralyzing there's no question and it can take away things and it i think it's really affected my energy level in general but most people's energy levels have been affected i i just have a fairly high um rev point to begin with uh the 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 novel that really revved me was um I, because of my book rule of three which is dyst dystopian 
I got literally hundreds of emails from kids and teachers saying, are you going to write about the pandemic? And I have answered every email that's ever been sent to me by a, by a child or a teacher, every single one I've answered. And, and so I read them and I was saying, no, 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 no. And I thought, there's a lot of anxiety here. There's a lot of misinformation. So I contacted one of my publishers and said, I want to write a pandemic book. Here's my basic idea, but I want it published within 40 days. I wrote a pandemic book and it came out 41 days from the day I put the proposal to the publisher. It's called Don't Stand So Close to Me. I was working 14 hour days. I'm a fanatic at meeting deadlines. There was no way I was going to be late for this interview today because that's not the way you do business. You show up early, meet your deadlines, you do what you're supposed to do. Also very Canadian. I want to circle back actually to your book about the pandemic. Don't okay. get so close to me. Um, because you do have a lot of your books are about quite momentous geopolitical events. Like I was saying to Sky, the first my first exposure to the Rwandan genocide was actually through one of your Stop. books. Yeah. And um, I was wondering how it differs writing a book as this event is occurring, as opposed to it being about an event that's happened that you're looking back at on in retrospect? It, it was very different writing and uh, something that was happening at that moment. And I was insistent on getting it out then because I wanted kids to understand terms like flattening the curve and um, exponential growth, which people didn't seem to know. But I also wanted to give them a sense of hope. And that's the end point of this book is that we know we're going to get through this. We know we need to care for each other and be responsible, and we're going to get through it. And those are the messages I wanted to get across in that book. Uh, we also talk very much, very Canadian, I think, but, but also American at this point, about people seeing themselves in their stories. We need to see ourselves in our stories. There was no book where people could see themselves in the story that was a dominant feature of the, what they were living, the pandemic. And the message that I've got back from students and parents and teachers is, thank you, you, you let us see what we're doing. They, they can see themselves in this book. It, it was very, um, the production schedule was insane to do, put a book out that fast. The fastest I've ever been able to do is my book on the uh, Haitian earthquake came out one year on the one year anniversary of the, of the earthquake. And I thought that was beyond belief. So we worked concurrently on that. So while I was writing and we were also doing some editing and I had uh, beta readers and British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, Arkansas, and Florida reading versions. Kids and teacher librarians and teachers. They were working on the cover at the same time. I had a book trailer they were working on at the same time. I wrote the author um, study guide, the, the teacher study guide, and all of it's going on at the same. So instead of one, then the next, then the next, it was like everything at once. It was, it was amazing. And I hope to never do it again. <laughs> What do you think is the particular importance of having books on things and seeing yourself in books rather than any other media? Because um, obviously you seem to have real big passion about um, getting kids and young people reading and what is so special about that? Well, I, uh, first off, if, if you have Steven Spielberg's home phone number, I'd be quite prepared to call him and have him make a movie out of any of my books. <laughs> Let, let's be honest about that. Um, books enter into our brains in a whole different way. And you can see yourselves in, in them. You get lost in them. Have you ever seen a movie after you've read the book where the movie was half as good as the book? Where what played out in your head um, played out the same way? No. 
it, it's just that you can visualize things. The, the only example of a, as I've said, you've never, there's one that came close to me. I love Danny the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. Um, <laughs> my mother died when I was young. I think I really empathize with that story. And then there was a movie version with Jeremy Irons and his son played the son in the book. And it wasn't as rich as the book. It didn't have the dimensions because you would have had to have a 48 hour movie. But that was pretty good. That was pretty good. What you said about being able to see yourself in books and representation, I think, is so pertinent right now, especially as there's a lot of discussion about representation in children's literature. And yeah. you've actually, like, you've written a lot of books that address things like race and disability. And I was wondering how you see yourself continuing to build upon creating representation and diversity in children's books, but also if you could go back and revisit any of the stories in the past, if there was anything that you would do differently? Oh, that's it's almost frightening. We're, we're in an interesting time, and I, I've really worked hard to, um, to co-write with people and to bring people in. It's one thing to have a voice, it's another thing to know how to sing. So what I've been doing is consciously going out and seeking people of diversity and asking them to join the, the leading organization for children's literature called Canscape. I've been saying, this is why you need to be here. This is what you'll offer to the organization, what the organization will work, right, would bring to you. Um, three of my last co-writes, and I, I shouldn't be the king of co-writes, I co-wrote an African story of my friend, uh, Danson Kiyoko Matinda, who's the, the, the son of the co-founders of our, our children's program in Kenya. I wanted his voice in there, and I'm teaching him to be a writer. This book with Wally, Wally is a brilliant spoken word poet. He's never written a novel. He's going to write a novel after this by himself. We've been going through that process. Um, a book that I co-wrote with Paul, with Paul Kocha. Wonderful guy, Paul. Paul brought, it's about a, a young boy whose father and parents, his parents separate, turns out his father's gay, starts bringing his new boyfriend to the kids' basketball games. Paul was able to bring that voice. What I'm trying to do is, is allow people to, to develop their voice. I want to still tell stories. I, I hope it never gets to the point that all I'm ever allowed to write is about 63-year-old white uh, heterosexual males. That wouldn't be writing. That's called autobiography. If you look back, for example, a book called Rebound, it's about a kid in a wheelchair. And it's written from the perspective of his friend, not the kid in the wheelchair. But today, would I be attacked for writing that book because I have no right to write that book? we're in an interesting time and sometimes I'm I, I see people being attacked because they appropriate voice and then I hear people being attacked because they didn't include diverse voices that's like you gotta let me win one of these ways I've, I've been using I used to call them cultural editors I wrote a book in 97 and it's about Canadians of Japanese descent and I say that very clearly Canadians of Japanese descent who were interned during World War II I said to my editor, I will only write this book if I can have a cultural editor, who is Mary Adachi, world expert on this. I was writing a Canadian, a character who is Canadian of Japanese descent with a cultural editor that made this sensitive to me, allowed it to be accurate. The question isn't, what do you have a right to write, but what do you have a right to write right? That's too many rights. <laughs> as long as you, I think you have some latitude if you um, consult the community, if you don't take away stories that are just theirs, and if you, if you write with that sensitivity and understanding. 
my background, I have degrees in education, psychology, and uh, social work. I have a master's of social work. I'm a family therapist. I try and climb inside my characters continually, no matter who the characters are. And, and it's fascinating to me that when I wrote with Kathy Kaser, she said, you write really good Jewish girls. And Wally's saying, boy, you understand what it's like to be a, a, a brown Muslim kid in grade eight. And Paul said, you understand the gay male attitudes. And it's like, well, I'm a writer. I hope I can climb inside of characters enough that I can represent them. By the same token, having those people involved in those stories allowed those stories to be richer and fuller and better. It, it, it's this thin little line we're walking today. And, and, and it's got, you've got to be so careful and sensitive and aware of why people would be angry at you. People have a right to be angry. It's that whole thing. Anyone that says, I, I get so, it's so funny when people say, oh, there's no systemic racism in my country. It's like every country in the world, every in the history of humanity, it's always been there. Let's acknowledge it and move forward and try and make it better. Don't deny it. Exactly. On that sort of idea of um, when you write things from different people's perspectives, you also write books for um, lots of different age groups and lots of different kinds that. of children. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a lovely thing to have that sort of scope so people can read you all the way from when they're young to when they're um, a bit older. But what is it like, what changes when you're writing across different age groups? What would you put in a book for 14-year-olds that you wouldn't put in a book for 10-year-olds, for example? It's, it's mainly topic. I, I, I'm, I'm not doing genocide uh, for seven-year-olds. So when I'm writing the genocide the, about genocide, I'm going to go older. I, ironically, as I say that, though, I wrote a book called My Name is Blessing, which is a picture book about a, a kid whose mother tried to kill him because he was disabled. But, mm. but there's a subtlety. I don't talk about him being killed. I talk about his mother didn't want him. She, she actually threw him in a garbage pit three times before the grandmother rescued him. It, it, it's funny. I, I, I spend a lot of time in Kenya, a lot of time in Kenya. Um, I co-founded a uh, children's program with a family in Kenya. It's run on the ground. Ten of the 12 votes are Kenyans. We raise them uh, some years, almost half our money on the ground and decisions are made in Kenya. They've made me an elder in the community. So I feel like I have some right to, to write that community with their consultation with them involved. But I, when I wrote about Tanzania, which is across the border, I brought in a Tanzanian um, co-writer because Tanzania is different than Kenya, which is different than Uganda, which is different than, and, and that's accepting the, the, the variance within this. Um, one of my moments where I was worried about how people are going to react is I wrote a book called Walking Home, which is based on the uh, political violence in Kenya. And there were probably 6,000 people murdered, uh, 400,000 people had to flee. So I took four young Canadians, four of our orphans, my co-founder, Henry, and two special force policemen, and we walked across Kenya to follow the journey of the child who was walking across Kenya with his sister. So I've written the book, and we also filmed and did pictures, and that book has little icons that go to um, a website that shows you videos of it and author notes, and it's like a director's cut of the book. And, and so I'm at a, a school in Kenya, an uh, uh, international school, and all of the African Kenyan teachers I've had a book club and they've read Walking Home and I'm going to meet with them. And I'm thinking, so I've written a book about Kenya and the political violence and I'm going to meet with a bunch of Kenyans to talk about this and this could really be interesting. And we sit down and start the meeting and one of the women leans across the table, takes my hands in hers and says, I am born and raised in Kenya. 
you taught me about my own country, things that I didn't know. Thank you for this book. It's like, that's what you're trying to do sometimes. And, and maybe the best perspective isn't the perspective of people who are right there, but science, maybe the perspective of being one step back really helps. You see things. If you put your hand too close to your face, all you see is nothing except dark. You've got to move a little bit away. And, and the writer's job is to move one step back in whatever situation and have perspective on things and look at it. If you're in a meeting with a bunch of writers and people, actually you can pick the writers out because they're usually standing against the walls and they're looking in at what's going on. And, and they almost look like policemen observing the room. And sometimes you, you're able to get perspective by being outside of things. I'm, I'm really fascinated with this process that you have that you just kind of mentioned where you walked, where you walked the journey of somebody walking home. Um, because I know you also climbed Kilimanjaro before you wrote Between Heaven and Earth. And I was, well, technically, I was, I was writing it while I was climbing Kilimanjaro. Which is insane. And I was just kind of wondering how that process started for you and what it stemmed from. I, I think I'm a method writer. I like doing what my characters do. And so for Between Heaven and Earth, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, for Just Deserts, I walked 200 kilometers across the Sahara Desert. Um, for Elephant Secret, I just hung out with elephants. I just spent days hanging out with elephants. It, it gives you perspective. Sometimes you can't do those things. Um, when I wrote Trapped in Ice, where the characters are up in the north and they're freezing to death, I, I was in Toronto. It's cold, but it wasn't the Arctic. So I went out in my backyard with my running shoes, shorts, and T-shirt on in a blizzard and made notes about what it was like to freeze to death. And, and there's sort of peripheral things like I'm taking notes and my, my pen freezes up. My character's in a far colder place. She couldn't write with, with a pen. I figured out how to, then I, I figured she had to have ink and she had to melt it. So I put it over a flame, a bottle of ink, and watched the way the flames came over and the way it sort of blackened the bottle and the way the label started getting tinged, singed. And, and I thought, okay, this is going to be in there. I love experiencing what my characters experience. For, for run, I ran marathons in every province where Terry Fox ran a marathon. You get inside your characters that way. That's, and it's also a lot of fun. But I did want to ask, actually, kind of as we get towards the end of our, of our interview, what you think the biggest misconception is about writing for, for youth? That it's easy, that every adult writer should be writing a children's book. There are some people who can make the, the, the jump. I'm not one of them that can go up to adult books. Children's books are their own unique thing. And people who do picture books can't necessarily do young adult. Young adult people can't do picture books. It's a distinct skill set and has to be treated with, with uh, the same respect and dignity. I, um, is, is Madonna your next door neighbor by any chance? You live beside Madonna there in London? Because she's she's a, she's a prime example of how you don't write a children's book, where you just you just throw this uh, moralistic concept out and think people are going to think it's a good book. Messages have to be subtly ingrained within the story, not hit over the head. And no, not everyone can write a children's book, Madonna. And I'm not doing any videos in uh, in my lingerie. That we, we have skill sets and we've got to acknowledge what we can do and what we can't do. 
That's my message. <laughs> and now Madonna is mad at me. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, well, actually, she scares me. I think she could take me in a fist fight. That I think she could do. She does seem powerful in that way. Very determined. Very determined. Funny when when you're when you're um, when you're a determined, self-actualized person that takes control and you're male. That's one good thing. And when you're a female and do that, you know, you're Hillary Clinton. It, it's 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 a very different uh, dynamic. She's pretty powerful. She's a great performer. She's not a children's writer. Madonna, stick with what you can do well. You're brilliant at what you do. No more picture books. I hope she gets the message. I hope she hears that. Um, I hope she doesn't hear it. Um, so you've, you've, you have written so many books. Um, is there anyone you, you're particularly proud of from the... I mean, I imagine you're proud of all of them, but is there anyone maybe for its message, for its impact, for its longevity that you would say, yeah, particularly. Everything I've written is still in print, which is good. So the book I wrote 23 years ago is still being published. Um, certain books have had bigger impact. Um, Run, which is about Terry Fox, who's a, a national icon here in Canada. Um, all the money from that goes to the Terry Fox Foundation. And I came up with the idea for the National Terry Fox Run Day, where we ended up with 10,400 schools simultaneously doing a Terry Fox run that day. Pretty proud of that. Um, Walking Home raises money for the orphanage. Uh, so does uh, Today's the Day, which is a story about our birthday party. I, I'm very proud about those stories. I, I love though, I, I used to get emails from soldiers in Kandahar about my book, Wounded, telling me how much they appreciated me writing this book. And I'm thinking, you're in Afghanistan and Kandahar fighting terrorists and you're thanking me for writing that book? That, that's a pretty amazing, um, amazing thing to have happened. That is quite incredible. Um, I think that we're kind of towards the end of our time. And um, so I wanted to thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us today. It's been You're a really wonderful conversation. And I was hoping maybe you could leave us with what you would suggest somebody who might be interested in writing children's books do to begin on that path? Oh, the best thing I can tell you is read children's books. Read the books that uh, you love. Find out the elements that touch your soul. And then when you start writing, plan it. Plan your story, plot your story. It's, fun, it's funny, I, you asked if I want the questions in advance. I never want questions in advance. I like winging these things. But when I'm writing, I am so planned, so organized. You have to take this as a serious business because it is a serious business. It's fun, but you gotta be serious about it. So do your research, read other stories, get your story ready, plot it out, and don't be afraid of failure. Because you're probably going to the first few times. Amazing, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And the only other wisdom I can give you is please be aware of that picture behind you. It has shifted from one side to the other. I'm a little bit afraid for you. Um, oh my. Sky, I can you check in on her, okay? Thank yeah, you very much. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.